Hey everybody, this is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast. Stoked that you're here. Hope you're doing good. Today, I've got a rad interview with my new friend, Sarah Ness. Sarah is the founder of Authentic Revolution. They are a organization that spreads authentic relating, training for leaders and individuals and basically people, how we can more authentically connect with one another. And when I first learned about Sarah and what she was doing, I kind of felt this uh, strange um, aversion that it was kind of woo-woo and it was all soft and mushy and gooey, but I had uh, some affinity for it that I couldn't deny. And as you know, I have a deep adoration for the connections and relationships in my lives, in my life. And so I was so blown away when she told me how this kind of authentic relating work is literally saving the lives of oil rig workers in the middle of the ocean. And I see connections into how this can save my own life as a paraglide pilot and as someone who takes risks. This is such practical and useful stuff for our everyday lives. This is amazing. And Sarah has done such a great job. I really appreciate her coming on the podcast. So I know you guys are going to like this. If you like this podcast and want to support it, please leave a five-star review and a rating. That helps a lot. I could really use some of those right about meow. And consider donating. That's paypal.me slash airy in the air. And without further ado, here's my talk with Sarah Ness. Okay, Sarah, thanks for being on the podcast. Yep. <laughs> so give us an introduction, just what is Authentic Revolution and why are you doing it? How did you get into that? Just give us some background here. Okay. Um, let's see. Just getting my head on straight. Authentic Revolution or Authentic Relating is the practice that I mostly do. And it's a set of tools to basically make communication easier. I was, I'll give an example. I was talking to a, um, a friend this morning who's having trouble with dating. And she was talking about like meeting someone um, from uh, Tinder for the first time and having this conversation where he kind of just like dominated the conversation the entire time. And it like might've been a good connection, but there was no way to tell because the, the kind of conversational balance was so out of whack. And, you know, she ended up feeling like, ah, oh, he's this kind of really not interesting guy or it's not going to be a good connection. And like things like that happen all the time where we're coming to each other with different 
expectations about how a conversation or an interaction should go. And authentic relating games are ways of kind of like screwing and playing with that defined social structure to give us more choice. For instance, like there are curiosity games where we might set a timer and one person could ask questions for five minutes and the other can answer. And then I might give some feedback on how those questions were. Um, and then the other person gets a turn. And because we're always coming at conversation from, from different expectations, authentic relating kind of lets us look at the skeleton of interaction and have a lot more choice in it. And it's, a, it's on a practical level, there's like more than 150 different mini interactions of this kind that work as everything from icebreakers to empathy training to um, like some are used in addiction counseling. Some are, a lot of them are used in businesses and schools. They're a pretty versatile toolkit. And um, my company, Authentic Revolution, our goal is really to try to make these available to as many people as possible. So we do a lot of information gathering, creating manuals, building maps of where communities are. There's more than 80 communities for this across the world, um, doing facilitation trainings and generally um, trying to bring together the different threads of the connection movements of which authentic relating is really only one. Okay. And so you're mentioning these games. Kind of give me some examples of these games. Okay. Um, one might be, there's something called the noticing game. So maybe we can even play it. This is, this is one of the simpler ones and it's the noticing game is like a relational meditation. It's getting to what are some of the things that are affecting our experience as we're with each other. So if you're up for playing it, um, we go back and forth and just say, being here with you, I'm noticing. And what you can notice is anything happening in the present moment. So sensations, emotions, things that you're seeing, um, thoughts that are running across your mind if you just want to give them a headline. Yeah. So you want to try it? Yeah, sure. Okay. So being with you, I'm noticing um, like a bit of like worked upness, like wanting to like, speak fast and my voice ending on a high note like a question mm -hmm. yeah i'm noticing a, a a similar sensation of worked up that that i'm like trying to craft the conversation in a certain way that is effective and informative as well as entertaining. And like, there's like this, like a timing element to that, that like kind of creates a little bit of rush or anxiety. I'm noticing I slowed down hearing that. I stopped looking around as much and I felt more settled in my body. Yeah, I feel much more at ease just saying it. I'm noticing um, some nervousness and 
I think like a um, like a nervousness and a tiredness of all the things that I'm coming into this call with, like uh, just awareness of grief and loss in my family and mm-hmm. um, like everything going on in the world right now. I'm noticing a, a nervousness from a very different place. Almost, um, there's almost a part of me that, as I come into contact with the ideas that you work with, I there's a part of me that like feels defensively macho that I. And, and also like almost afraid of being having like the typical generic feminist rhetoric about how patriarchal and, and controlling my vocabulary is, you know, these. (laughs) Wow. Um, I'm noticing like a a feeling of like feeling fascinated and curious and impressed (laughs) (laughs) both for your, you revealing that and for like the self-awareness and like this kind of expansion of perspective in my mind right now of how many different factors are, Mm. how many different social factors are weaving into how we interact, how we Mm -hmm. feel about And I like want to keep playing this for the rest of the call. Like, <laughs> should I end it? Should we keep going? <laughs> oh no, it's really amazing. Just even in that, I mean, we've been talking on the phone for what is less than eight minutes or something, and as an icebreaker, even that is just so incredibly effective. It just coming clean with my own nervousness in conversation is just a way for both of us. I mean, seemingly a way for both of us to be relinquished of the vast majority of that sentiment, at least for myself. Yeah. What I found really fascinating about the games is people generally know what's standing in the way of connection. Mm. It's just that we don't have a space to speak to it. Mm. And it doesn't even like have to be a specific structure. It can just be like, it's just like the the word game somehow opens a space where the rules are different. And it's really just like an invitation of, Hey, what's, what's going on with you that's affecting how we're being together. It's, it's almost like at, like the question that we asked to say hello, like, hey, how are you? Actually saying that and wanting to know the response. Mm-hmm. That's kind of all an authentic relating game is. So I'm really curious what other, like what do you see the problem that this solves is like in a kind of a zoomed out way 
Like, why is this important? Why is it so helpful for us? Why do we need this right now? There's a couple of answers to that. Um, One of them is, I think there used to be, maybe this has never been the case, but in my mind, there used to be um, more kind of understood rules for how we could interact with each other. Like there was etiquette, there was less intermingling between cultures and different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Like you kind of knew about, like even in America where there's not genders to verbs and not like, you know, formal and informal forms of address. And there was still an understanding of like about how you should interact in the world and with whom. And now a lot of those standards and barriers have really changed. Like we interact with people from so many different backgrounds, so many different ways of life in a society that's changing so quickly that the social rules are are really in flux. Like even if you look at the number of different relationship styles you can have and how many different places you can find them and online versus in-person interaction, we're in this chaos and our minds don't do well with that kind of choice paralysis. So we're trying to interact with more people than ever on more formats than ever with less and less understanding of the rules. Um, And when I say rules, I don't mean like explicit, like etiquette rules, just like the implicit expectations we have about how other people are supposed to interact, whatever bugs us when someone else doesn't do it. Mm -hmm. So the, the value that I see in the games is that, um, they create a space where we know the rules enough that we don't have to worry. It's like our minds can kind of rest a little bit into Mm -hmm. what the structure is. And therefore it's a lot easier to be honest and forthcoming about our experience. Brene Brown talks a lot about vulnerability and the power of that. And what I've found is vulnerability is definitely about courage, but as much as it's about courage, it's also about having the right environment in which it's okay to be courageous and it's okay to open up. A lot of people have trouble interacting with their families and they go like, why can't I just be myself around my family? Well, the structure of the family isn't set up for you to be yourself. It has its own norms and rules and structure. And if you are yourself, you break those mm-hmm. and that can have real repercussions. So if the social structure, if the structure of conversation is set up to make it easy for us to be honest, we all will be for the most part. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that we're seeing so many different incentive structures that are like leading us astray. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also a lot of, if you, like what happened, what's happening within COVID right now is it, it feels like communities are coming together in a lot of ways more than ever. And we're realizing that to face disasters, we have to be able to work together and having the tools to resolve conflicts, to hear other people's perspectives without reacting, to know how to ask about and speak to what's happening on deeper levels of conversation, Mm -hmm. like why someone is annoyed and frustrated, what pattern is playing out, what do they think they understand about what we just said, why aren't they wanting to collaborate? Like these are these are things that can be asked about and the games provide structures, but they also 
give more of a space and a set of tools to be able to have conversations that I think are getting increasingly necessary as we step into a world that has a lot more unknowns. Mm -hmm. I agree. I totally agree. And I think that from my view here, it seems that the reality of our own like relationality, like that we exist in relation to everything else and everyone else mm -hmm. is becoming increasingly obvious. And when we see that, then we're forced to reconcile the fact that we are communicating interpersonally and even interpersonally in ways that aren't working. And I've almost made this, I've made this analogy lately that like, that it's almost like the world, what the world actually needs is like marriage counseling. <laughs> because there are people with differing opinions that are like weaponizing their own sense making, they're weaponizing their own opinion against the other. Like the Trump supporters are weaponizing anything that they can, any fact, any meme that they can to poke in the eye of the libtard enemy and vice versa, right? And I've almost, I've been making this analogy that what we actually need is like marriage counseling because we have completely and totally forgotten how to be decent communicators, not even compassionate, not even like, like compassionate is in the positive spectrum and we're failing to get to like a neutral place of just decency. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that these kind of things that you're doing are actually really uh, powerful at a bigger, like on a bigger scale. Yeah. Something I think about a lot is like what is needed. Like the games are amazing communication structures. Once you get people to listen. One of the things I'm trying to figure out right now is how do you translate them to people that like don't want to listen to each other and don't mm -hmm. want to communicate. Mm -hmm. And that also requires a lot of structure and a lot of like finding the right people. And I think one of the cool things about the people that you've interviewed on this podcast is a lot of them are trying to create those systems um, by which we can bring people together in more humane ways for like more less threatened conversations. Cause right now it's like if, if a Republican talks to a liberal and either the liberal or the Republican gives up their point of view, they're not just giving up their point of view. They're giving up their identification yeah. mm -hmm. with um, a social group, which is dangerous to our identities really. So it's like when we're talking about communication structures and strategies and and like communicating better, the, the thing to recognize is like our communication and our ways of being aren't just about us. They're also about the groups that we claim loyalty to and that claim loyalty to us. Yeah. And there's almost like a deeper part there, which is like the misidentification of our beliefs as ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of cool developmental psychology there. Like Robert Keegan talks about the the orders of of consciousness, basically the orders of the self, like third order consciousness being your identity within a role. Like I am a daughter or a student uh, 
or a partner like that. And if I lose that, like, for instance, people who get divorced, um, if their identity is, is at that level, then it's like they lose everything about who they are. And I think that's true of all of us to some extent, but then there's also this kind of self-transcendent, like fourth order consciousness. That's you are, you are a self that is beyond your roles you are like your values and your personal identifications. And there's one theory um, that is that like, as, as a human race, we're hastening this evolution right now towards being more um, kind of conscious or self-transcendent mm. individuals. Um, and there's something about the balance between who I am in myself and how I'm connecting with others and seeing myself as part of a wider organism. Um, like kind of just like getting, getting a little bit philosophical. That's one of the things that I'm contemplating these days is like, we have a huge value on individuality in Western culture, mm -hmm. but right now we're being called to come together in a way that we haven't had to before. And we have this internet, which is basically, you know, globalizing and connecting all of us. And so it's like, where is it valuable, especially in crisis, to be bringing my gifts and self-actualizing and expressing myself? And where is it valuable to be collaborating with those around me and, and understanding what their needs and values are and making myself part of a whole? Yeah, I think that you really just hit the nail on the head as far as the cultural strain that this puts us under. And personally, it's been just like at the heart of all of this is I am a, just a deep individualist. My sports, like my entire life has been dedicated to these sports that are like kind of me versus the ethereal. Hmm. Um, you know, I like as a young child, I was like wrestling. I was a wrestler and like, that was like so obviously me versus something else, but like in paragliding, like you're kind of, facing these invisible nebulous um intangible things and hmm. as the coronavirus as covid has really come to the forefront it really has made me question like even just the efficacy of that like belief um and i think it has brought new thinking to me as far as like climate change and just existential threat to humanity in general. Um, so yeah, that's about that? what's that. Can you say more about that? Like what has it changed about your, your orientation? It sounds like you were drawing a parallel between like how you've usually done sports as almost like you against the world. And now there's like some change happening as COVID and environmental um, threats loom. Yeah, so um, there are times there are times in my sports where where I am in a position where there is no ability for any person or group of people to help me. Like if I am deep in the mountains in really turbulent air and my glider collapses and then spiraling to the ground, like that's, there's, there's no help from anyone else. And there's, 
a necessary understanding of a really, really high level individualism and self-reliance mm-hmm. comes with accepting those kinds of risks. And that has been my life. Like ever since I was 12 years old, I've been doing flips on skis. And if you go off the jump wrong or you go too fast or you do your flip too hard, no one is going to save you from landing on your head. And so that has been my experience that has really like cultivated this worldview um, from like a, an individualistic perspective. And as I've gotten older, it's, um, it's kind of morphed into this understanding that yes, we need collective action and society is a sum of the parts. And so if you want to change society, you have to change yourself. You have to, if you want the world to be more peaceful, you have to be more peaceful. If you want the world to be greener, like you have to like kind of take some kind of actionable step to make that reality inside of yourself and then within your small sphere and then the next layer out, you know, it's like, that's kind of just been how my worldview has progressed through my sports. And as coronavirus has come, it's really like shaken that it's like I've kind of built this like structure of my own understanding on the table and then coronavirus just kind of shook the table and it's like, will this like, will it stand up through like the, the predictable shaking of like the risks of existence at all? Like, will it, you know, will, will the structure still stand? And the, I, I've long had a, um, reluctance to fully swallow the pill of climate change because it is 99.9% of the time based in political action that it is like somehow they're trying to rally for some kind of political vote or tax or regulation or law or something that comes top down, which is backwards to my ideology. And so I don't swallow that. I'm also like, I think that nonviolence is a lens through which I see every single thing in my life. And I see the violence that is inherent, that is necessary to uphold laws in the way that we have them right now. And so to use violence is something that I'm not like, I, I don't condone that. And I, have long been an anarchist who is whose shtick with the government is based in its violence. And so um, I've long had reluctance to swallow the climate pill in that way, but seeing this virus and kind of understanding just its mathematics as a potential for uh, meta crisis, this uh, domino effect that goes from our public health system to our uh, financial system to our econ to our governance to our literally like the social fabric that keeps us peaceful with our neighbors has really like made me wonder if that 
if my own ideologies are like robust enough and compassionate enough and um, effective enough to actually work. Mm. And I've never thought that I was like the person that was going to figure out how humanity needs to live. I just knew that we like that I could, there was a blare, there was like a glaring problem with having a gun of violence in the room and people bickering over it on behalf of the Democrats or the Republicans saying that they want to use the force of the government to do X, Y, or Z. Right. And so. It seems like, go ahead. It just seems like you're moving from kind of this, this individualist and really like value centered worldview of like knowing how you want to live and changing yourself and then kind of seeing that, that ripple out or it's like uh, more of a focus on like self than like uh, what other people should do or what your interaction with them is. And it sounds like you're kind of coming to a place of recognizing the interconnectivity of the systems that we're in. Oh, for sure. For sure. I think that the, the reality of our interconnectedness is more obvious right now than ever. I think that the veil is either extremely thin or pulled away entirely from how interconnected we all are and interdependent even more. Yeah. Um, but the parallel that I'm drawing between coronavirus and climate change is essentially that there are even hypothetically situations that could or are arising that are existentially threatening to humanity and in the face of that what kind of information ecology what kind of individual sense making what kind of collective sense making what kind of collective action structures or behaviors or any of this need to be in play for us to move forward for us to continue existing mm -hmm. and especially in a way that the world produces these really really uh intricate sewn nylon sleeping bags that end up flying hundreds of miles in the shape of a paraglider you know like <laughs> like i really i really want this like i want the good parts of my life to keep going and i don't want to sink down into like a lower level of complexity where I have to be a fucking gardener, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, something you're, you're kind of pointing at is I think, and I think this is true for a lot of us that like there's, there's individual and systemic concerns happening at the same time. Like, I think we're always balancing like what's happening mm -hmm. for us, what's happening in the collective, what's happening in society. Um, like ego, ethno, world centric, if you want to put it that way. And it's like, okay, for myself, I want to continue like a comfortable life. And for the world, like I want things to run well. And for myself, I'm like kind of seeing how I can benefit from the shakeup in my routines and the necessity of questioning what I've been doing. And then for the world, it's like, this is a massive stress test of our systems. Mm -hmm. And so there's like both there's like pain and potential benefit at both levels. Um, but it also is a really like, we don't, we don't like chaos fundamentally. Like even those of us who I think are most comfortable with change, 
uh, our minds are built to settle into organized patterns mm-hmm. and that's not what we get right now. And so there's really more than anything, it feels like people have been turning to things like authentic relating and relational practices just to have a space to process what's going on. Um, Because if we can't metabolize it individually or collectively, we're kind of ending up with this backlog of like, even today I was realizing that I have like a ton of just suppressed grief Mm -hmm and uncertainty that I'm, I'm doing a lot of action on top of, and that kind of like gliding in and out of what am I feeling? What am I doing? What am I feeling? What am I doing? What is the collective feeling? What is the collective doing? Mm -hmm. Um, There's actually some beauty in how I see us individually and together having to figure out how to navigate this. I totally agree. I totally agree. And I also think that the ambiguity that we are just cognitively allergic to is um, only very thinly covered up by the systems that are in place. I think that, right, like our own existential ambiguity the fact that we are going to die our own mortality is something that we that we so thinly cover up in our with like these blinders and so i think that it's actually um just becoming more obvious to us right now but i'd love for you to say more about how in the midst of all of this in the wake of all of this how people have been seeking out um authentic authentic relating and what kind of purpose it's been serving for them. Yeah. I can say like the ways that I've been getting called on in it, which are definitely Mm -hmm. different than what was happening before. There's been a lot of like talk about resilient communities. And one of the side effects of authentic relating and similar practices is that they tend to form really good communities because when people are interacting with each other, there's a wonderful study about this, actually. There was an Invisibilia episode that NPR did on a Shell oil station. And they, um, the workers on this oil station, like there's a super high rate of incidents on oil rigs. Uh, and, the, and Shell, for whatever reason, decided to put these workers through a kind of emotional intelligence and connectivity training, like vulnerability work, basically. Um, they had these guys like looking at each other and confessing their deepest fears <laughs> and stuff, <laughs> like, you know, hardened oil rig workers. And what they found is that after that program, the incident rate dropped something like 80 or 90%. Wow. Fantastic. And the reason is because there's, there's a culture of not um, wanting to reveal our fear and mistakes. Mm-hmm. We have very little room for error. Um, which you'll notice like if you make a mistake and like the way people look at you, like the first thing they do, like if you cut someone off in traffic, the first thing that they think isn't, Oh wow. I guess that you must've like needed to get somewhere fast. It's like, fuck you, dude. Like, yeah. you know, how could you do that? Or yeah, if you cheat on somebody, or, we're, we're a blame focused culture. And mm-hmm. even to the point where there's, you know, the, the, funda- I think it's the fundamental attribution error. It's like a cognitive bias where we tend to interpret um, our own actions is due to situation and others actions is due to personality. So we've got this like setup for failure. Right. And until we have a space that is more accepting of 
asking about someone's motivations for why they did something and revealing our own motivations and talking about like our truth and what we're scared of and what mistakes we just made, we end up literally like dying rather than admitting a mistake. Cause that's what was happening on these oil rigs. Like if somebody hadn't set something up right, or they'd made a mistake or they didn't know if they didn't know their job, they just weren't saying it. And such, since it was such a high risk environment that just led to deaths. Oh my God. And, wow. and so what's happening right now is like, as we're in this increasingly high risk environment and having to be more interdependent and the feedback loops of, of information and occurrence are getting shorter. Like there's new information every day. We're having to figure out how to build systems and communities that can exchange information more quickly. And the exchange of information needs to happen um, on a level of understanding ourselves more on a level of having more trust and ability to establish trust, um, to talk about the hard things. It's, it's really creating a different sort of communication tool. And another example I'll give, this is from um, the book Tribes by Sebastian Junger, which is one of my favorite books. It's beautifully written. Um, he talks about a group of miners being stuck in a mine and, uh, at first, after they're stuck, there's this, um, the first people that kind of like get energy and go out and try to do things are the people that are like, not super like emotionally intelligent. They're like the kind of more like rough and ready, like just going to solve the problem guys. And they're like going and trying to dig it out and like get out to the open air and, um, really like leading the charge. And then there's a point where they realize that they're actually stuck and they're not getting out of this. And those guys lose energy because they're not built as much to deal with situations that they can't solve. And the people that emerge as leaders, um, in this case, were the ones that had the ability to keep people's spirits up and understand people's feelings and had higher levels of emotional intelligence. And they were really the ones that kept everyone going until luckily in this case, help was able to come. And so as we've kind of, as we're transitioning out of the stage of like, just solve the problem emergency and that's starting to be balanced with psychological and emotional needs. People are, are coming to authentic relating and saying, Hey, like, how do, how do we talk with each other more? How do we form resilient communities? Like, and, and that has to do as much with systems as it does with, with relational practices. But if the two are woven together, um, good communication structures with the ability to be honest with each other, and curious about each other's motivations and checking in and um, having those techniques. It's, it's really helping, I think, to form spaces where people feel safe enough to um, be with all of what's happening. And the other, the other thing that people are just coming for is, is um, like the ability to connect even remotely. Cause we've been holding connection games over zoom for the past five years on my platform connect and there's other organizations that have been doing the same. So it's really like, cool. We, <laughs> it's definitely possible. We've got this. And also I've been teaching techniques for how to um, keep good connection with people that you're isolated with because small frustrations are building up for all of us. And um, there's some tools for how to keep that from exploding. Wow. That honestly, what you just shared is like really like mind bending for me because and I want to go back to this oil rig vulnerability. And I also don't want, like, I want this to be our segue into what you're kind of alluding to this, like emergent leadership. Um, 
But with the oil rig thing, I see that so much in paragliding. Like I have a YouTube channel. I do paragliding tutorials and I teach people um, all kinds of different things. But the thing I try to like bring into the conversation that doesn't exist there is this emotional intelligence, this emotional awareness that the most important thing you do before you launch your paraglider that day is you actually take some kind of account for how you feel, like where you're at the things that you know, the things that you don't know, all of these things. And when you're talking about the oil rig um, scenario that the stakes are so high, but the new guy, he's green, but he can't admit that he's green. He'll get hounded for days and days and days if he admits that he's not exactly sure how to do his job, which compounds onto the experienced guy who can't admit that he's tired or he's emotionally unresourced or any of these things. And these just like things stack and stack and stack until there's one crack that kills eight dudes on the deck of this oil rig. And I see that in paragliding because we have this like machismo that basically like when you walk out on launch, like you have to like pretend that you're the pro and you're totally got it and everything's good and like you're totally experienced and that's just not the case 90 something percent of the time there's all there's something there for most all of us and the ability to reshape our communication just between pilots just to be able to say hey today i'm a little bit afraid today you know all this coronavirus news has really gotten me kind of on edge like whether we should be flying at all or like how much risk i'm willing to take today like going to the hospital seems even scarier right now and like this vulnerability that actually doesn't just create like a soft and gushy moment where two grown bearded men stare each other in the eye and pet our heart centers. But we actually like by bringing awareness to our emotional realities, we can actually mitigate our risk in a really serious way. That's fucking incredible. And I just love the, idea that a a girl from Texas could have such seemingly soft messaging that could have such huge impacts on oil rig workers in the middle of the ocean who are you know covered in soot and grime and these are like the hardest kind of rawest laborers in the world that's just like that's amazing and shows our interconnectivity and interdependence i love that but i also want to um kind of hear more about this emergent leadership you're talking about the coal miners when they get shut in obviously the big very masculine guys are like we're just going to dig our way out and then they dig you know eight feet before they realize oh my god like there's 800 feet further like we can't we can't dig ourselves out of here and they lose energy and the leaders become the people who can uh, are almost and, and help me fill in here the vernacular that I, that I am not familiar with, but they're almost like more subtle and they're more uh, introverted or emotionally aware. What is, what is it about those people in that coal mine that, that uh, what what traits do they have that help them emerge in the leader as a leader in that hmm. in that time? Um, 
Hey, I just like freaking love that. <laughs> I'm going to pull that quote about like, you know, bearded men, not just petting their heart centers, but actually bearded <laughs> crisis with this. Cause, cause just to, to kind of ping on that, like probably a lot of what's happening in our governments as well right now is that fear of admitting mistakes leading to a lot of sunk cost fallacy. Oh my God. This is something I, th- we have to tangent here because there's this, um, you know, Eric Weinstein has been talking about this. Uh, the reason that the government has taken such draconian measures to stop coronavirus is not actually because of the numbers of death that are possible, but the numbers of death that are caused because the resources and the preparation weren't allocated when they should have been. And it leaves a, a, um, a vulnerability of, of uh, accountability. Mm-hmm. That they're liable. There's a liability directly to the government that like, you know, an eight-year-old girl dies because there's not a ventilator that should have been there, that there wasn't an ICU bed that should have been there, according to all of the academia, academic um literature over the last 30 years and that that liability falls directly on them. I think that, um, yes, this is a perfect segue into what I'm really super curious about for you. I know that you do leadership training and I want to talk about leadership and, and what like a, what like a, what I guess first I would love to hear from you what you see in the current leadership. Like what is, leadership currently look like not only in our top governments but in businesses and in even in like parenting and what that like currently looks like and then introducing some of the tools that you're talking about and how that kind of transforms it yeah um definitely yeah i think um this kind of leans into when we like to point fingers at people in government and fingers at leaders because they're easy scapegoats because they're individuals, but it really is the systems that tend to create the way we interact and, and our systems of leadership and what is acceptable and not in leadership are built on this presupposition that making and admitting mistakes is a bad thing. And oftentimes making and admitting, like admitting mistakes is tied to whether or not you keep your job. So it's a catch 22 where like, Mm -hmm if you are a leader who is vulnerable about what's going on and the fact that you don't know, which of course we don't know, especially right now, we don't have all the information. We don't even have all the information about like what is, you know, the best things to do in terms of public health. And we're kind of like getting this group think of shooting down anyone that's not giving the party line because of that, because we're scared and we are banding together. Um, And there's, I think at a very personal level, the willingness to speak out and create spaces for the unknown and for discomfort is really one of the best things that leaders can do right now because if they don't, we're just not operating on all the right information. Like something I like doing is just opening a space like, hey, for the next five minutes, I'm just gonna invite everyone to complete the sentence. I don't know blank. (laughs) just fill that in and have people fill it in as many times as possible. Cause we're, we're pretending um, that, that things are predictable. And, you know, even if you look at the way that business has evolved over the last 
couple of decades, it's gone from these kind of Gantt waterfall charts of let's plan everything out about how things are going to go to these agile methodologies of, hey, things change all the time. We just have to be ready to change with them. And we're kind of understanding the same about our psychology, um, especially as kind of culture speeds up in a way where we're, we're changing jobs and partnerships and states of being faster than ever. So there's this there's this willingness as a leader to question and to set examples of speaking openly about your own experience, what you don't know, um, and and then giving an in for other people to speak. One of the things that happens that I think gives vulnerability such a bad rap is leaders will kind of be like, I feel really scared right now, y'all, and I don't know what to do. And they'll just stop there. And if you're in a if you're in a culture that doesn't know how to receive vulnerability, that's really threatening uh-huh. because there's no way forward from there that that people know of. Like there's no cultural like when somebody says this, this is what we do next. And so <laughs> as a leader, you have to not you have to actually reset the whole culture by not only being vulnerable, talking about what's happening for you like letting people into what's happening in your company or in your family or in your school, whatever. Um, but also telling people how to respond to it and what to do next. Like, Hey y'all, I feel scared and I'm uncertain about what to do. And I just want to like open up like a five minute space for us to like draw like remotely on this whiteboard about like all the unknowns we have or like where we saw the company going and where it's going now. or like, you know, have kids in your family, like play out little scenes with, with action figures about yeah. their feelings. <laughs> you know, there's lots of ways to, to do this, but like as leaders, we really are being asked to create new systems of contact and communication as well as to show up within those ourselves. And um, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about the work I do is just like that, that really does, I think, require training and understanding um, because we're not taught for it. We're not built for it. And definitely it's something that like, I feel like I've so not cracked the code on, like there's, it's such a complex thing. Um, but I think there are like, like even in this conversation, like I can, I can like feel my heartbeat more. I can like, um, feel myself more inspired to like go back to my own communities because of getting to have this conversation and not pretend like I have the answers. Yeah. I love that. And the, what comes up for me there is like just the idea of the president of the United States coming on and giving an address of like, Hey guys, like I really made a mistake here. I didn't, pre- we, I kind of fired the wrong people and I kind of didn't take this seriously. I'm not sure what to do right now. And I'm kind of scared and I'm asking for your forgiveness. And, and it's like the, the, even the thought of that is just so that's like, we're closer to Mars than we are to that reality. It seems. And I also think that there's like this feedback loop that we're in that the leadership can't give it to the people because the people aren't ready to hear it. And the people like aren't expecting it from the government because they're not ready to hear it. It's almost like in the medical system, we have this, you know, this pill for an ill that the doctors are like at some level being like pressed by their, their clients, their customers or their patients to like be fixed easily. 
And so they expect this thing. And so then the doctors start giving them and it's just like this feedback loop just goes and goes and goes. And we get like further away from the truth in every single iteration of this. Yeah. Yeah. It's like we're, we're operating on really inaccurate information because we're not, we're set up to be a culture of, of blame deferral of responsibility and apology more than a culture of revealing and resolving really. And I think I, I'm, I might be remembering this incorrectly, but I think I remember like reading like a number of Lincoln's speeches and he's, he actually, I think says like several times, like, I don't know what's on the other side of this. Like, I don't know what happens next. I don't, you know, I don't know how to solve this problem. There's a lot of, um, yeah, they're, they're I really, think yeah, go that that really brings up the inquiry for me of like, is the the people that Lincoln was talking to are canning, gardening, farming, sewing, cooking, educating. They're doing all these things that are in their own, like their their lives are in their own hands here and they viscerally understand ambiguity at a level that we have become distant from. Mm-hmm. And we're getting a chance now to be more in touch with reality. I think even like, you know, my, my grandma died the day before yesterday and it's the first time mm. a really, a member of my family that I was like really significantly close to mm. has passed away. And I feel so goddamn lucky that I've gotten to 28 without that happening. Like when mm. else in human history could somebody say that? I know. It's ridiculous that we don't face those things every day and that we've gotten so distantly. The reason this is so difficult in America is like, I think it's been like close to a century before we've experienced a disaster that has hit us yeah. so close to home. We just don't know how to deal with it. And yeah. we're having to be with levels of fear and ambiguity that like, no wonder we're having such a hard time metabolizing it. And no wonder people like don't know what to do next. And, you know, every Facebook post is pointing in a different direction. It's like, you know, we, we're, we try to make sense of everything in every way we can. And that absolutely makes sense. That's absolutely the way that we live. And I think it should be. And at the same time, like just acknowledging that like this hurts and it's scary and I don't know what to do. Hmm. There's power. In that. There really is. And I'm so sorry to hear about your grandma. And I think that, a couple things come up for me there as you say that like right now we're not sure how to do with deal with this kind of thing and i think that historically religion provided a huge framework for us to metabolize our grief that we have kind of thrown out and i think that we've lost some baby there there was definitely a lot of bath water but i think we lost some baby there um and the other thing that i want to circle back to mm-hmm is this idea that there's like, you said that we're, we're just living, we're trying to make decisions on false information. And I almost, I, there's like some delineation that's happening in my head right now. That is like the difference between information, like objective reality, like objective fact, and this like subjective truth of, Hey, I'm not sure what's going on right now. Yeah. Well, I think we almost never have the facts. Like, even if you look at objective fact, you know, for years and years, we thought that Einstein's equations were like the only things to 
to like make physics make sense. And now we've got quantum mechanics. So we're like, shit, everything we thought we knew about the world is mm-hmm. like, now we have no idea. And mm-hmm. you know, that's happening even with COVID. Um, my mom's a public health researcher and epidemiologist. And she was kind of pointing out that we just don't have enough information to be making full decisions. And we don't understand enough about what the impacts on the economy are of completely shutting down for a couple of months. And we, we need to make decisions like we can't pause everything until things are clear because they're always going to keep moving Mm -hmm. but it's but while we do that there's like a humility in recognizing like those decisions may have to change tomorrow like i spent the last two years of my life putting together an online facilitation training and a conference of connection leaders that now is canceled like and it's, it's not canceled in the way of like, maybe we're going to reschedule this in six months. It's canceled in the way of like, we don't know enough about what the world is going to be like in six months to even want to reschedule these things. Yeah. And it's, yeah, I, I feel like there's kind of an essential irony in always moving forward with not enough information not a defined sense of purpose anymore now that we don't have things like religion to tell us what our purpose is creating new systems creating new collections like we're not living in a society that's built for us to thrive that's just a fact and we're doing our best anyways yeah we can't always know in paragliding there's a saying that if you could see the air no one would fly (laughs) yeah it's like exactly. the reality is way more complex and way more chaotic than your mind makes it out to be. And, and there's, there's yeah, this kind of noble lie mm-hmm. that we should have it figured out, that we should know our purpose, that we should have our career figured out, that we should even know what to do tomorrow, um, that I should have my habits down, that I should whatever. It's like, it's not about that. It's about me waking up alone and confused and going, what can I do today? That's, I'm going to look back at the end of the day and go, okay, cool. I can go to sleep happy. Yeah. I want to come back to this, this, uh, this thing you just mentioned as you talked about this, like vulnerable sharing this, like just sharing what is real in a person. You said it's very powerful. There's like a big power in that. I want you to talk about that power. What is the power of vulnerability? Like, what is it? Oh, that's a big question. Um, the, so I think it's two things. One, or probably a lot of things, but I'm just going to say what's coming to my head right now. <laughs> um, we, there's like two levels on which people like have experiences. There's experiences that like we share and resonate with in each other. Like we, we share relatively the same feelings. We share a lot of the same experiences of life. Like we're all probably to some extent confused and scared right now and, and in the unknown. So like, that's a place where if I'm vulnerable about that, then other people can go, Oh, okay. Like I don't have to hold this alone. And there's a releasing of energy because whatever I'm holding back, whatever I'm protecting that I think that energy of holding something back is actually sapping any energy that I have to do other things. Like imagine like a time where you had to keep a secret. Every time you saw the person you had a secret from, I bet you felt like a little less free to interact with them fully. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's that kind of thing. Um, So there's vulnerability in saying, here's an experience I have. Now there's permission for others who share it to have it. And then there's also these, these experiences that are more, 
that are different among all of us. Like the, a lot of the conscious, the consciousness movement loves going to this level of like transcendent unity where we're all sharing in the same experience, but there's also a diversity that's equally beautiful and important where it's like, you know, for instance, we don't have much um, acknowledgement or reverence for different age groups right now in our culture. Next week, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be interviewing um, a guy that's like got to be in his seventies or something. And we were talking the other day and he was talking about like the human potential movement and where connection practices come from and T groups. And it's like, Oh my God, yes, we have so much history that like, I'm mostly interacting with other people in their like twenties to forties and hearing nothing about. So there's, there's these val this value of individual experience of like, I'm a woman, you're a man. We have different age groups. Like, like my grandma just died, like that's a difference. Um, that the vulnerability of, of revealing those things, both informational and emotional and experiences we might not share creates new information. It creates a sharing of perspectives. Like if I talk mm-hmm. to a homeless man on the street and hear what his experience is like, all of a sudden in my own work and life, I'm including an awareness of that where it's like, oh, here's how my actions are gonna affect him here's what I would have to do to take that into account. Mm -hmm. And everybody has their own version of this. So it's like there's connection, freedom, and full information um, that we get from vulnerability. And if you just think of vulnerability as talking about um, things that are like particular to you or like below the surface, oftentimes vulnerability, there's all sorts of different definitions to it, right? But oftentimes I know it by just feeling something in my body while I'm talking, whether it's information or emotions that I'm giving, um, just like revealing a little more maybe than what I'm comfortable with. Um, it feels like that's like, if we're not talking at that level, all we're doing is talking over it and we're making conversations last so much longer than they have to. And the Mm -hmm. feedback loops are therefore so much longer. Cause it's like, if you're arguing with someone and you're arguing because you're actually scared and you never say that the argument's never going to end. Yeah. I feel like we are stuck in that feedback loop right now where, and that's like from the leadership down to the lead. And I, I want to get back to this idea of emergent leadership that we're talking about. So talk to me about your leadership training and what like the problem it's solving and what the solution looks like. Yeah. Um, I just want to say this. so I'm not distracted by it. I, I like notice every time you talk about our leadership, like I think I've been feeling really frustrated at it, like mm-hmm. at the leaders of our country. And now like, as we're talking about this, I'm just recognizing like, how tough of a position they're in to be in this culture that really doesn't acknowledge or allow for mistakes and being in a real space of the unknown. Like that's just gotta be fucking tough. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Like just like whatever job you're doing, (laughs) thanks for, thanks for doing it. Cause it would suck to be in that seat right now. Hmm. Yeah. I, for so long, I've argued that that seat shouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. That to create a seat that has power over people with force is only going to attract malevolence and people who are 
ill-equipped to actually have it because no one who is benevolent would elect their uh, like volunteer themselves to make decisions over other people's lives. Yeah. I mean, there's so many, so many theories on that. I'm personally a fan of benevolent dictatorship, <laughs> like Plato's kind of philosopher king idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the reason is because like, even in decentralized systems, I've really found that people focus on leaders. Like we're built, I think, to look at individuals as leaders more than at systems and mm -hmm. to look up to other people and to like take our cues from them. And so it's really like, um, yeah, learning to be a good leader feels important and not, not just for those people who are explicitly recognized as leaders, but because we all are in some way. Like Agreed. if you're the eldest person or the patriarch in your family, you're being looked at as a leader, whether or not you recognize it or want to acknowledge it. If anyone is basing their actions on what you do, you are a leader. And and there's like a pain in, in, and a real responsibility in not being able to get away from that. So um, yeah, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the, the leadership trainings that I do. And currently they're, the live ones are paused because um, we are uh, figuring out how and whether to recalibrate those. We'll, we'll do them again in October, but they're like practices of, they're like spaces where we get together and practice, like learn kind of some of the basics of how to lead from a place of authenticity, how to enroll other people by being vulnerable, when and how to do that, um, empathy techniques, and largely a space to kind of fail fast and iterate. So we just put people into a lot of situations where they're leading the group and get to figure out what their own version of doing that is and try to figure out like what their tech, what their kind of personal expression is that's like more natural and not constructed in such a way that even if they're under stress, that's going to be what they revert to. So there's like a honing of natural gifts and a trying out and a lot of feedback. So that's the, the authentic leadership training and the emergent leadership training are like the main ones for that. And then we also do a um, online course called the authentic life course. And that's um, like really down to earth um, techniques for relating with people in your life, like how to make requests and set boundaries and get feedback and be curious. Like a lot of the the communication tools that we're needing right now. And that course is, is nine weeks and coached. I do a Q and a on it once a month, everybody gets put in triads to practice. And it's got like a whole bunch of games and assignments, um, both to do with your triad and with people in your life as well as alone. So that one's still going on. Wow. I think this is, this is so necessary. I think that our, like, as you've mentioned a number of times, these are like tools that we just were not given like, mm -hmm. and are every, every single institution all the way from parenting up to the educational institution itself are all educational. And we are by omitting this kind of information, we are essentially telling every child and person that it's not important. And then we are facing the repercussions of that belief in so many myriad ways from our own addictions and our own lack of acceptance of all of ourselves to the breakdowns of our relationships interpersonally and with the greater collective. Mm-hmm.
This is all really amazing stuff. I'm so, so, so proud of you. This is so rad. And I'm so grateful that you took your time to, uh, to come on the show. This conversation has been just riveting for me and has definitely stirred up some courage in myself and some inspiration in myself. And I hope the same for you. So I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. I don't think I've ever talked so openly about like <laughs> my kind of like philosophy and theories on a podcast. And so I really think of that. I love it. So how can my listeners follow and support you? Well, Ari, sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, my website is uh, authrev.org. So A-U-T-H-R-E-V.org for short for Authentic Revolution. And that's got there's a whole bunch of stuff on that. There's a games manual that has more than 150 relating games. Um, I'm going to link a, a guide that I've been working on about uh, leading connection games over Zoom. I've like rewritten a ton of them for that, and and kind of looked at how you how you set up Zoom and other uh, video platforms for connection. And then that also has links to the trainings and links to a platform called Connect, where we do. Uh, connection practices multiple times a day, every day, led by skilled facilitators. And people can can get in touch with me off of that site as well if you have more questions or desires. Great. Well, I encourage everyone to do that. And thank you so much, Sarah. Keep doing God's work. (laughs) Thanks, Harry. We'll see you later. Yeah, bye. Okay, you guys, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on. If you guys like this podcast, share it, subscribe, leave a review. That really helps. Consider donating. That's paypal.me slash airy in the air. I've done nearly 20 of these episodes in the last couple of weeks. Been working really hard to bring you some interesting content and some decentralized ways of thinking. So if you appreciate that, please reach out and encourage me at the very least. You guys stay healthy, stay sane, stay safe. We'll see you on the next episode, y'all. Peace.